I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Pele Hallam Young. I met Pele through my earlier guest, Andrew Hallam. He was on episode 59, where we talked about his life as a nomad. After listening to his story, I knew that a pretty talented, fabulous woman had to be his partner. So I invited Pele to share her story. It was a treat for me. We spent two hours on our pre-chat and two hours recording afterwards, which is funny because initially she thought she didn't have a story to share. If you are one of those people that think that you don't have a story, think twice because Pele is here to prove you wrong. She chats about her life, travels and adventures. She even goes into uncomfortable moments and truly a fascinating story. So let's enjoy it. Welcome, Pele, to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's all the way from Vans in France. She is from the U.S. She's here to tell us her story, and I'm very excited about that. So, Pele, when does your story start? Oh, it's an interesting. I was thinking about that, and you talked about what the questions you would ask, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Where does my story start? What's my story? So first, I was just trying to think, what is my story? Because I think it's so interesting. People typically don't think their story is very interesting. They think everybody else's story is fascinating. You know, I don't really have a story. So if you ask me, I don't really know if I have a story. So I really had to think, what is my story? To be able to say, when did my story start? I, I kind of bring it back to before me. My story started before I was a thought, I really think. I, I look at my parents and I think the influence they had on me and who they were really shaped who I am. Before I was even born, they took the opportunity when my father's sister was living with her husband in Hawaii, they went to Hawaii for a month and they were scuba diving in Hawaii. They were exploring. My father was very outdoorsy, very adventurous, very courageous, did stuff that I think was just kind of crazy, he used to scuba dive in caves. And back in that day, they weren't marked. You know, he used to go spelunking and cave exploring. Again, in caves that weren't marked, he would just go with somebody and then he would learn the way, you know, and you'd have these tiny holes you would crawl through, like stuff that is a bit extreme. And I remember before I was born, somebody had told my mother to remember that I was coming into their life. They were not coming into my life. Interesting. And the whole idea was that they should continue to live their life the way they want to live their life and not change it because I'm there. So when I was a week old, I was in a boat. I was in the front of the boat sleeping. My mom just plopped me in the front of the boat. I slept all day while they went fishing. My grandmother, my mom's mom, apparently was very upset because I hadn't been baptized yet. And so she was very worried about that. But my mom, my mom was kind of like, ah, it's fine. They made me the way I am. They made me as independent as I am and as much of an explorer as I am. I, I love to learn new things and explore. I don't see myself as doing things that are overly dangerous. I think my dad probably did some things that I would define as dangerous, but I love adventure. So I always like to say, I don't like danger. I like adventure. Mm -hmm. So I remember one time when I was years ago, when I was in 
New Zealand. It was one of the Christmases, and I'm going to guess at the year, but it was probably sometime around 2002. And I was with a friend, he was an outdoor education, and he was a rafting guide. And we went to the river kayaking, and we were with another couple. And there was a 30 foot waterfall that we had the opportunity to kayak off of. And I remember the night before I did not sleep well. And I was like, am I going to die? Am I going to die? Because I don't want to do it if I'm going to die. But if I'm just going to like break a shoulder or break an arm, like if that's the worst thing that can happen, I'll do it. (laughs) And his answer did not put me at ease at all. Because he's like, well, Pelly, there's no guarantee in life for anything. You could walk across the street and get hit. And I was like, I know, I know. But like, if I go off this 30 foot waterfall, what are my chances that I'm going to die? <laughs> so he didn't really have the best answer for me. So I like adventure, but I don't necessarily like danger. I did kayak off the 30-foot waterfall. Good. And it was amazing. Nothing happened to you. No, nothing happened, except he told me my form was very bad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I made it. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. true. Going back to where your parents, they got that advice. That's really actually interesting and it's true. The kids are coming to your life instead of you getting to their life. Yeah, so I did everything they wanted to do. I didn't have a choice. I think probably they had to adapt a little bit. I see people now, they've got the backpack on with the child and they're hiking with the child. And you know, and then you have other people who are like, well, we have kids, we can't do that right now. We're going to wait until they're out of the house or until they're older. I love the fact that my parents you know, did what they wanted to do. If they wanted to visit friends, I went along. And if it was late, they just laid me down and I fell asleep and they picked me up and put me in the car on the way out. I think they did a lot of what they really wanted to do. And I went along as I got older. Of course, I complained. Every weekend we'd go either hiking, biking, canoeing, kayaking, rafting. We do something. We would do something outdoorsy. And I remember I must have been the biggest pain because I would complain and I was tired and I didn't want to do this. I still had to do it. It wasn't a choice. Just because I didn't want to do it doesn't mean they didn't go. They went and I went too. I didn't have a choice. And it's quite interesting now because when I'm walking in nature or going for a hike, I find myself at such peace. It's something that I love now. I wouldn't say I loved it when I was a teenager or when I was younger than that. My little legs would get tired and I remember they would they would be so far ahead of me. And they would kind of turn around. And as long as they could see me, they were fine. And so I would be the last one to get there for lunch, the last one to arrive for like the drink break. And they had already had a rest. And they're like, okay, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And I hadn't had any time to rest. And I'd complain and I'd whine. And I'm sure I was just such a pain. But I look at it now and I'm so glad that they didn't stop doing it because I was difficult. I'm glad they didn't not take me because I said I didn't want to go. Like I didn't have a choice and I went. But now that I look back on it, I'm so glad because I love going hiking. I love being in nature. I love being in the outdoors. It's a source of peace for me. If they would have said, okay, we're not going to do it because you don't like it, I wouldn't be where I am today. If they would have not done what they wanted to do, I don't think where I would be where I am now. I saw my parents being very adventurous and very outgoing and doing a lot of activities. I had great role models that way. Yeah, great role models. Yeah. Pele, what happened after that? So you were hiking and doing all these activities and then you obviously graduated from high school and where did you go? Yeah, it's funny because sometimes when you look at your life, some people really work hard at they set a goal and they make their path. And I feel like in my life, my path has just opened. 
And I don't feel that I've done a lot to make it happen. I feel like it has just come to me and I've been opening and accepting of it. But I know that's not necessarily true. Uh, I had to apply for college. I had to work at doing the things that I did and the opportunities I had. But, but I only applied to one college. Nowadays, people apply to so many different colleges. They do their tours. There was a college in my state that was good for teaching and languages. And that was the only thing I felt I was really good at in high school and that I really enjoyed. And so I thought, okay, Spanish languages, that's what I'll do. And this one college was known for having a good Spanish education program. I went there. And then during my junior year, I did a year abroad that was offered by my university. I did it in Valencia, Spain. And I think that was my tipping point for leading me on the path, I think, for what is my story today, this kind of international educator, global nomad, traveler, and explorer now. Because I did a year abroad. I lived with a Spanish family, and I memorized well in high school. So I got good grades. I enjoyed class, and I memorized well. But I think back then, the the education technique was a lot different for learning languages, and it was a lot of very rote memory, memorization. And I memorized well, so I did well on my tests. I wasn't necessarily able to speak the language. And so I thought, I really need to get serious about this. And so I, I went and I studied in Valencia, Spain for the year. And I suffered. I suffered. I cried all the time. I realized how much of a small town girl I was. I mean, I didn't realize it before that. But we don't have buses where I grew up. We don't have taxis where I grew up. And I got to this big city, this big port city with traffic and buses and taxis and just this huge city that I would get lost in. And back in the day, you'd have that big map that you would unfold and you'd walk around with this massive map in your hand. There were no <laughs> iPhones and there was no Google Maps. And, you know, you'd have to try to find your way on these maps. And of course, everybody was speaking Spanish. And I just, I had a hard time and I lived with a family and they spoke Spanish the whole time and I didn't understand a thing and I would sit in my classes and I would try to write down what the professor was saying and as soon as I was on the third word they were on the third sentence <laughs> I just I could never catch up I just could never catch up and I laugh about it now but oh, I was just devastated I would just cry and I I got back to my family just the different cultural like the mother in the family would be talking on the phone with her sister-in-law. And I used to hide in the bedroom and close my door because I thought they were yelling at each other. <laughs> and I came, to find, I came to find out they were just having a nice conversation. <laughs> the hands were going all over the place and she was talking and really emphatic and a lot of emphasis. And I was like, oh, they're yelling at each other. I didn't know they were just having a conversation. And so I had, I'm not going to say a whole year. I would say probably a few months of feeling lost, yeah. feeling stupid, not being able to speak to anybody, you know, doing a lot of gestures, charades, learning. I think it was probably in the third month or fourth month where I felt like I became more of a sponge. And I really started to learn the language and learn the culture and then the best thing, I got my Spanish boyfriend. Oh, okay. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So that helped tremendously. You know, but actually, I remember, I remember my mom would call me every week. And back, back then, you could hear the click, <laughs> click, click of the telephone. And you just knew that it was costing my mom so much money to call me every weekend. And I would just cry, I want to come home. And she was fantastic. And I give her a lot of credit because she kept saying to me, 
you stay for a semester. And when you come home at Christmas, if you don't like it by then, then you can come home, but you must stay until Christmas. And then we'll reevaluate at that time. And ah, by Christmas, I had a boyfriend. I was happy. I was having a great time. And so, yeah, I, I went home for Christmas, but then I definitely returned to Spain. And that second semester, I think I just flourished and I just was a sponge and I had so many amazing opportunities. I really feel like that was my turning point or my tipping point to getting comfortable with the language and learning that you persevere and can move forward. The more you can expand your comfort zone, the better off you'll be. But you have to be uncomfortable. You have to be a little bit uncomfortable to be able to to later have a larger comfort zone. Yes, that's a good advice. That's true. You have to go through that. I have such a hard time, and I I don't want to seem insensitive, but I think the the key word nowadays seems to be like is they're anxious. Anxiety is such a huge word that I think that is used. I know it's it's real, but sometimes you have to get through that, and you have to face it, and you have to confront it, and know it might not be pretty. It might not be comfortable. It might not be fun right away. But if you can push forward and persevere, you can expand that comfort zone. You can just move forward, I think, with some of those feelings of nervousness or anxiety. Yes. It's a moment of growth when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Or even afterwards, you can reflect on it and say, oh, wow, I hadn't realized that that was really, I grew so much during that time. I think there's yeah the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And maybe with somebody with a growth mindset might say, wow, I'm going to really look at this. What is the opportunity? You know, I'm going to look at this as an opportunity and make the best of it. And I, I think in a way, I don't know if I necessarily did that. I just think I yes. kind of like the hiking. I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. Staying in Spain. I had to stay in Spain until December. That was my mom gave me that kind of directive and, and that's what I was going to do. And I think now looking back on it, I'm so glad I stayed because it allowed me to grow so much and it allowed me to learn so much. I mean, it was really my first experience of in a, being in a big city and living in a big city and, and understanding all the amazing things that come with that. Right. And just learning something new and about a new place. And now I just I uh, can't get enough of it. I guess in a way, I'm kind of like an adventure junkie. I want to learn about new cultures. I want to learn about people. I, I want to learn their story. Yeah, I just can't quite get enough of it now. I love it. There's so many places to see. And, and I think it opens your mind to being more tolerant. Yes. Because it's not always your way. It's not always that this way is the best way. There are so many different ways. Yes. And no one of them is the best. They all have their beauty maybe, but it allows you to be tolerant to see other ways of being and of doing things. Yes. I like the adventure junkie. I feel like that too, even that I haven't traveled as you have been doing lately. I feel like I'm, I want to see, I'm curious. Yeah. Even when we're traveling and there's a road off to the right, I want to know where it goes. I, and that's just my personality. Huh, let's go down that way. And it might end. It might be a dead end. Who knows, right? Like who knows what you're going to find? But I'm constantly doing that. And I love it that Andrew's like, you know, I'll come up with these crazy things that we want to, you know, do this. Let's do this. And it's like, okay, let's go down that road. Let's see where that goes. Okay. <laughs> it's great. Yes. Pele, when you went back after the year in Valencia, how was that going back from a big city or a small town? I think just having alternative stimuli, I, it wasn't as much of a culture shock for me because I think there were just new things happening at that time too. Because I was continuing with my courses, finishing up my college 
I had to do my student teaching. And so I decided to do half of my student teaching in the United States in Pennsylvania. And then I found a program, not really through my university, but I had to change to another university to be able to go somewhere different. My university had an option of doing half of my student teaching back in Spain. But I thought, well, I've already been there. I'd just like to see something else. And so I ended up transferring to a different university that had a program in Quito, Ecuador. And so I did half of my student teaching in Quito, Ecuador. So I guess, you know, one thing rolled into another that rolled into another. So I did half of my student teaching in Pennsylvania, the other half of my student teaching in Quito, Ecuador at an international school in Quito. And then when I was there for maybe it was six weeks, I forget what it was, they hired me to come back after I graduated from college. And so that was my very first teaching job when I graduated from college. And so I returned in the summer of 1988. And so I don't know, I just feel like one thing rolled into the other. How was the difference between Valencia and Quito? What was the culture, the language? How was the language for you? Because they speak completely differently. I think the language was fine. I, I spoke Spanish, so I felt comfortable with it, but I was still, I was still kind of learning. And so I didn't really notice that much of a difference. People could understand me. I could understand them. I ended up actually living with a family that I got very close to when I was there student teaching, and they they asked me to come live with them, and I did. Later, I got my own apartment, but even when I had my own apartment, I would go back to what I considered home to go with my host family. And so I had my apartment, but I would pretty much stay at the house with my family most of the time. That international school you were teaching what? I was actually, I actually student taught Spanish. So I student taught Spanish for the, the Americans and the Brits and the foreigners that were oh. living and their parents, right, were living in. So they were going to school there and they were in the international section of the school, but they were learning Spanish as a foreign language. And so I was, my cooperating teacher was an Ecuadorian. I was working with her during my student teaching. So I got my degree in Spanish as a second language with secondary education. But when they hired me in Ecuador to go back, then I was teaching English. So I was teaching English to Ecuadorians, which was hugely different because I thought, oh, I'll use some of the same teaching techniques that I would. But I didn't realize that these students had had English as a second language since kindergarten. Their English was amazing. Their English was perfect. So I wasn't teaching like, hello, how are you? What is your name? Like, that is not what I was teaching. I was teaching literature and I was teaching grammar. I was teaching English like a, you know, like, like somebody in a public school system in the United States would be teaching mm -hmm. English 9, English 10, English 11, English 12. So that was, a, that was a huge learning curve for me and not something I was overly comfortable with. I mean, I guess as a, as a native English speaker, it was different for me. I mean, you just speak English, but if somebody asks you, well, why do I say I instead of me? Somebody who would be trained would actually be able to tell you why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it just sounds right. So it was, it was definitely a challenge for me, but I did that for two years. Yeah, great. Then what other adventures did you get into when you were in South America? Um, traveled a lot around Ecuador. I'll tell you one thing I didn't do and I wish I would have done. I just didn't have the money for it. So it wasn't even an option. But at that time, they had an airplane ticket that you could buy that would think you could use it within one month. And you could stop at all the capital cities in South America. There was one country 
that they just kind of bypassed. But that would have been Bogota because that was a difficult time at that point in time. And I just couldn't afford the ticket. So I never did it. But the one thing I did do was went to Peru. And that was amazing. Backpacking with a bunch of the other teachers at the school. It was a fascinating trip. It was one of those trips where kind of everything went wrong. But when you look back on it, it made for very interesting adventures <laughs> and interesting stories. So that was really kind of it. It was just Ecuador and then the trip to Peru. Did you visit the Galapagos? I did because my parents came to visit. Okay. And then when they came to visit, we did the jungle and Galapagos. Okay. So yes. I got to do that. We were talking before, you telling me that you went somewhere in Colombia and you had another adventure over there. Oh, that's, I was in Ecuador for two years teaching. And during my second year at spring break, I went to Colombia and we went to Bogota and then we went down to the coast to Cartagena. That's where, like, I kind of say, I don't necessarily know if I did anything to, to have this kind of life path come towards me. I, I don't know if I did anything to, to make it happen. I feel like it, it came to me. So when I was in Colombia, I was with a girlfriend of mine and we went from Bogota and then down to, down to Cartagena and the coast. And we did a touristy thing where you jump on the little boat and they take you to the, through the archipelago of islands, the Rosary Islands, and you visit a beach area. And then you go by all these tiny privately owned islands and they would tell you which famous person owned which island and then you would go out to another island that was privately owned but the owner's son had created an oceanarium so like an aquarium but over the ocean and it was you'd pay your ticket and you would go in and take a tour through it and I always had a, a dream of training Shamu that was always as a child I have no idea where it came from But I always thought it would be amazing to train Shamu in SeaWorld or something like that. That did not happen. But when I got to this island and went through the Oceanarium and went to see the different tanks and the different displays that they had, one of the things they had was a dolphin, a show with dolphins and the dolphin show. And the, the local woman there was doing the dolphin show. And I was just in awe. I was in awe. I was in love. And I was in awe. My mouth was on the ground. The next thing I know, everybody else was gone, and I was just still there. <laughs> I was still there watching her finish up and watching her come back. I just had to talk to her, and I just had to say, how did you get to do this? Like, I would love to do this. And it was funny because I actually I told the truth. I said, I have no experience whatsoever. I have zero training. I have no idea how, how to even do this, but I would love to do this. And it was so funny because she just took me to the owner of the island, introduced me to him. And we had a chat and I told him the same thing. I know nothing about training dolphins. I know nothing about anything with biology, oceanography, zero. I'm a Spanish teacher. What do I know? But I said, I would love to do this. I would love to live on this island. I would love to be here. And he basically said, hey, it's not as glamorous as it might look. Why don't you stay for a few days? And so I sent my girlfriend back on the boat, sent her back to the hotel, said, wait for me for a few days. I'm going to check this out. I stayed on the island for a few days. And I was just like, no, this, this is paradise. And it was, a, it was a tiny island. There were 15 people that lived and worked there. So there wasn't much going on. There was a generator. So at night we had a little bit of electricity. But it was a very small island in the middle of the Caribbean. And I just fell in love though. And I just, this is it. And so I said to him, I love it. This is right up my alley. I can't think of anything better I want to do with my time. 
I have to go back to work. I have to finish my contract, but it is finished in June and I will be back in July or August. And so he said, all right, fantastic. I mean, there's no telephones on the island. There might've been a radio that he could have like radioed into the marina in Cartagena, but there was no way to communicate. There was no Wi-Fi. We're talking back in 1989, 1990. I went back and I finished up my job in Quito in Ecuador. My mom came to visit with a friend. They came with me to Cartagena and we sh- I showed up on the island in August with two suitcases. And I said, hello, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, he was surprised to see me. He said, ah, I never thought you were coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it. Like the opportunity arose and I jumped at it. So you've always been a very optimistic person, not to worry about how things are going to turn out. Yeah, I guess that's a nice way of looking at it. Or maybe I'm just like, happily ignorant. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, I, you know, maybe I'm just like a little bit simple. I don't know. It's like, okay, I'll do that. I've just, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know if I've been optimistic. I've just been open. I think I've just been open. And your parents, they always supported you? Oh, uh, you know, and that's what the most amazing thing of all, because I'm an only child also. I think that was really difficult probably for my parents. Uh, they were, they've always been very, very supportive of my travel, my sense of adventure. And I think they understand it as well. And I think it had to be very hard, especially when I was in Colombia, because we didn't have telephones. There was no way to communicate. And I would stay on the island for about three months at a time. And then after three months, I would take a week and go into Cartagena and I would call my parents and say, hi, I'm alive. Everything's great. But for three months, they would have zero communication with me. Wow. That had to be very difficult. They've always been really supportive because I went from Quito to then Colombia. And then I did work in the United States for two years before I got a job in Hong Kong. And I remember it was in 1993. I had been living in Virginia for the only two years as an adult that I worked in the United States. I was offered a job at Hong Kong International School. And at the time, I had no idea where Hong Kong was. I mean, it's the other side of the world, right? I had I had no desire to go to Asia, but I had an interview. So I interviewed well and they offered me the job. And I remember being kind of cocky before that, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I got I'm gonna interview with this school in Hong Kong. And then they offered me the job and I I I, I hit a wall. I was so shocked. And then it was real. I was signing a three-year contract halfway around the world. All of a sudden I was like, oh, hold on, maybe. I don't know. And I remember calling my parents and I got on the phone with my dad. And of course, I'm crying again. It's so far. It's for th- th- three years. And my dad just said on, on the other end of the phone, but he just said, Kelly, you'd be an idiot not to take it. <laughs> you get to go to Hong Kong. You get to go have this experience. You have to do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And that was it. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. And I was teaching Spanish, teaching Spanish as a second language to the international students at the international school in Hong Kong. You know, we had a lot of kids from all over the world. Yeah, my mom sometimes says to me, like, stop living your life for your father. And I think my father always had a dream to live in Alaska. It never did materialize for him when he got married. I think he looked into teaching at the Department of Defense schools internationally. And his idea was to go to Alaska. And then when he and my mom got married, My mom was also a teacher and she just didn't want to be that far from her family. So it didn't happen. And I said, I'm not living it for him. I'm living it for me. This is, this is what I want to do. This is what I love to do. But I'm so, I'm so fortunate, especially being an only child. 
to have parents that were very open and very encouraging mm -hmm. yes. to allow me to do this. And at one point, my dad said to me, we know that you're never going to come back to Gilbertsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Again, culture-wise, was very different from Valencia to Quito to Cartagena and then to Virginia, Hong Kong. You're out of your comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. And different cultures, which is opening more your brain and your mind. Yeah, right? yeah. And I just love all of the experiences. How was that, though? Do you, do you cry a little, too, in Hong Kong? Were you more adaptable, more open to that? I was definitely more open to kind of the cultures. It was a difficult time for me for a different reason then. But as far as just being in Hong Kong, and actually Hong Kong was easy because even though it was Cantonese, now it'd be more Mandarin, but then it was more Cantonese. Uh, you could still get by in English. It wasn't a hardship post by any means. Life was easy. Life was convenient. I picked up a few words so I could like tell taxi driver to turn right, turn left or stop here. Or, Can I have the bill, please? That kind of stuff I would say in, in Cantonese. I did try to learn Cantonese, but like that was a culture shock because like to have the same word in six different tones that means six different things. And of course, somebody says, ma, 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 ma. I'm like, yeah, you just said the same thing. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't hear any difference. It, that was tough. But I think because we could get by in English and people did speak English. And of course, we were in an area of town too, that was surrounded by English speakers and our friends were English speakers. So It, it was an easy place to be. It was a very easy place to be, you know, as was, as was Singapore. Singapore is an amazing place. So three years in Hong Kong and then you moved to Singapore, you, you apply for a job or how, how did that happen? Three years in Hong Kong. My first husband, we met in Hong Kong and then I stayed in Hong Kong for three years and he stayed for two. And then he went to Madrid. We stayed in contact during that third year. And then we got married the summer after I left Hong Kong, and I left to go to Madrid. I got married in the U.S., and then we went to Madrid as a as a married couple, and we were there for two years in Madrid. And so that was very different. He was at the school. He was teaching at the international school there, but I did not have a job there. So during the two years that we were in Madrid, I taught English at companies in the morning. I taught Spanish to some of the parents at the school. I took translation courses. I got my master's in Spanish as a second language. So I did other things when we were there. And so, yeah, it was great because I got my master's in Spanish as a second language at a Spanish university. That was a great experience for me. Did you go to Valencia to see the family that hosted you when you were there? I did, actually. We went down during five years. My parents came to visit with another couple and uh, my husband and I had a car at that point. We kind of all went down during Fayas to see the Fayas. And yeah, I, I got to see Valencia and I got to see the family and I got, that was great. Yeah. Good, that was good, fantastic. Good. Of course, that was my first experience with Spain. So there's always like a little piece of my heart is there. Right. Mm -hmm. And a yes. lot of my tears, <laughs> there's a, yes. a lot of my tears are in that city. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So you were two years in Madrid and then what happened? And then we went to a job fair in Boston we took the job in Singapore. So he was a math teacher in the high school and, and I got the job teaching Spanish in the high school. We went to Singapore together and I stayed for 15 years and he stayed for two. Okay. So, <laughs> and Andrew, who you interviewed previously, we kind of joke, we both came with a different spouse and left with a different spouse. Okay. I went to Singapore and Uh, in 1999, married to my first husband. My first husband left in 2001. 
Andrew arrived in 2003, and we actually got married in 2008. Ah, okay. And why 15 years in Singapore? Why so many years different from every other city? So I actually did four years in Hong Kong. And since four years, and I think I, I hadn't gotten married to my first husband, I probably would not have left Hong Kong when I did. So at year number four in Singapore, my mind just told me, oh, it's time to go. It's time to leave. Four years. You've never been anywhere more than four years. So it's time to leave. And I looked at it and I thought, no, I love it here. I love the people I work for. I love the people I work with. I love the city. I mean, the only two things I would complain about were, you know, a 21 hour door to door flight is not fun. And it's always hot and humid. And the only seasons are hot and hotter. <laughs> those, are, those are the two things that I would complain about while I was in Singapore. But other than that, I mean, it's the most amazing city. I, Singapore does everything top notch, phenomenal. And to be able to live in Singapore and then have all of these travel opportunities right in your back door, they were endless. It was beautiful. And it was a great job. I mean, professionally, I was top of my game. It was an amazing school. It's not for everybody. There are a lot of people that, that love the grit of like Nepal and India and Central South America, just some of the difficulties that come with that and just some of the grittiness that comes with that. And Singapore is almost like a utopia, like everything's too clean and too perfect, too organized, you know, oh, but you can't chew gum there. And there's so many rules that you can't bring in videos at that point in time. You couldn't bring in your VHS videos. They all got edited and looked at. I didn't mind the censorship. I didn't mind the rules. I didn't really think they affected my day-to-day -day life. I, and I tell you what, I, especially as an American, at least for me, there was something to be said for living in a country where nobody owns a gun was the safest place I've ever lived. Hmm. The police have guns, but that's all. And I'm okay with that because I felt safe. I felt, I felt ultra safe all the time. We never locked our bikes up because we didn't have to. We left our door open on a Sunday When we go down to the swimming pool, I never thought twice about not locking my door. I didn't even close it. I left it open. <laughs> But I loved living in a place where I felt safe 100% of the time. Did I go to the movie theater and certain, certain scenes were bleeped out? It didn't bother me. It's okay. Sometimes it was the price to pay, I thought, for, for the type of lifestyle that we could have there. I loved it. And I just think every year was a little bit different. I mean, the first two years there I, was there, I was there with my first husband. Then I was there single. People rotate through in international settings. It's a very transient lifestyle, which is good and bad because you make these amazing friends and then they leave. Mm -hmm. And so there's always this transience to it. And this, yes. you know, this change, it's constant change. I guess that is in life. The only constant thing is change. Yes, that's true. I just had a lot of it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I still have a lot of change all the time. It's not for everybody. It definitely suits my personality and I definitely thrive on it. Yes. So I think those 15 years just went quickly. Everything was just changing around me. There was always something new. When I was in Hong Kong, I got into kayaking and I would play kayak, water kayak polo uh, for a Chinese girls team. I was I couldn't speak to anybody. They couldn't speak to me. <laughs> they spoke Chinese. I did not. I also got into rock climbing. Singapore, I continued with the rock climbing, but it was more indoors, a little bit outdoors, but more indoor. The kayaking happened on trips when we took kids on trips. 
But then different things. I, I played tennis with a group. You know, I had my book club. I played racquetball and squash with another group of people. I did a lot of scuba diving while I was in Singapore. The scuba diving wasn't amazing in Singapore, but Malaysia was a weekend trip. We could leave on a Friday night and get on a boat and wake up on Saturday morning and plop in the water in Malaysia. And it was amazing. Wow, it sounds exciting and incredible. <laughs> you are definitely a very adventurous and sporty person trying all kinds of sports. You were 15 years in Singapore. And then what happened? Now, I met Andrew in 2003, but married in 2008. We stayed in Singapore until 2014. And I just felt like I needed a change. And so we thought we would take two years off, travel for two years. And then that didn't happen. I mean, just things changed and kind of ebbed and flowed. And we, we found different kind of passions and different adventures and different things came up. And so Our two years off turned into six, which turned into eight, which is now nine. We're nine years of being globally nomadic and, and traveling around and typically not staying any one place very long. But of course, COVID changed that. During COVID, we were in Canada for 14 months. And now I think we're, we're moving more into some adventures along the way, but staying a little bit longer. So we're actually going to be in France now for two and a half months. And then we will go well, back to the United States to see my mom. But from there, we'll go back to Panama again. We were in Panama last year. And this time, we'll stay in Panama for probably six months. So we'll split our time between Panama City and have the city life. And then we'll do another half of the time in Boquete, which is a beautiful mountain town closer to the border of Costa Rica. And we'll stay there for another chunk of time. So, you know, we're starting to stay longer chunks of time in places, whereas before it was a few weeks, a few days, a month at maximum, but we're still moving around. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And that's something so attractive for me to hear your story. And I wanted to, to you, for you to explain, because I hear a lot of nomadic, but usually they're males. And as a woman, how is that? Well, I think when we left Singapore, we had to pare down quite a bit. 15 years, you can imagine how much you accumulate stuff. Because Hong Kong was really the first time I started making money. And so I had furniture and I had stuff and then I moved the stuff to Spain and then I moved the stuff from Spain to Singapore and then I just kept accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. I had a road bike, I had a mountain bike, I had all of the climbing gear, I had all of it. I had the climbing rope, I had the carabiners, I had, I had it all. Well, also with the humidity, things don't last as long. The soles of my hiking shoes disintegrated into dust. But then I was shipping stuff back to my mom's house and I knew that she didn't want a lot of stuff. And so we got rid of probably 90 plus, 90, at least 90% of our stuff, really pared down. I kept a few bits. I felt like a few cabinets and a few carpets and a few paintings, but honestly, I haven't seen them in nine years. I haven't looked at them. They've been stored in my mom's house and I don't know when I'll see them again, but that was a good lesson for me too. Like you pare down that much and then realize I haven't looked at it in nine years. And I looked at the clothing that I have under my bed in my bedroom at my mom's house. And she keeps saying, you know, go through your clothing, get rid of your stuff. And I was like, well, no, I mean, who knows? I might use it again. I don't know. I'm not at the point where I'm ready to get rid of everything, but it has helped me realize that you can don't need a lot. And I think from paring down from leaving Singapore, and then one of our adventures was a bicycle trip. And we've done a few of them on our tandem. So we have a tandem. 
that comes apart in two cases. So it fits into two hard suitcases. Everything comes off. The chains, the pedals, the handlebars, everything comes apart. And it goes into these two suitcases. And when we travel with our tandem, and we've done that, to, I think it's been on like 30 different airplanes, Andrew puts it back together, but we only have one pannier each. And one pannier is about a backpack full of clothes. And so when we go on these trips, when it's a hot climate, it's easier because you just take shorts and t-shirts and sleeveless tops. Everything has to be easy to pack, easy to wash and fast drying. So I never look pretty whenever I go anywhere. I don't look fancy ever. And you roll it up really tight and pack it in. And so when we travel, that's really all we need. And you can learn to do with very little and you see how little you actually need. And I know one trip, especially we did on the tandem through Europe in 2016. And we started, I guess, in mid-July into mid-October. So we did our 90 days and in Europe, like 89 days. And then I knew in October it was going to start getting cold because we were in Croatia at that time. And so I had a down jacket in there. I had running shoes. They were, they were racing flats, though, because they, they packed tighter and they weighed nothing. So again, I didn't look fancy, but I was able to just pack in a pannier for three months. Wow. So we had two biking outfits. While we were wearing one, the other one was getting washed. But you learn to do with less. And if you think about it, too, I think if everybody thinks about, all right, what's my favorite outfit? And you think about what's in your closet. There are probably a few go-tos. And then there's that other stuff that's like, yeah, I wear that once in a while. And so you, you really learn to do with less. Yes, I, I know that growing up in Venezuela, we would go to the beach every weekend. You just bring the bikini and a towel, and that's it. And so then, of course, you are here in North America, and then you just somehow have to carry a chair <laughs> and the beers and the cooler. And then so when my aunts come and visit, they look at the car, and they're like, oh, my God, are we coming back? They think that we're moving out. <laughs> Because you get used to, to like, okay, well, well, maybe I need glasses because maybe I want to read because maybe I want to need this. Maybe. And it's maybe everything. If you happen to go to the beach, for example, and you were not ready, you will sit there and just take your shoes off and your socks and you will enjoy it and you'll go in the water. And maybe you will even go in the water with your underwear and wait until it gets dry. I know that you need yeah. very little. And it's always hard too, because even like, you know, with COVID, we hadn't traveled for so long because I felt like I was in the rhythm before I was in the rhythm, right? Like, oh yeah, just, this is what I wear. And I, you layer up, right? As long as you have layers. But after 14 months of not traveling and being in Canada during COVID, when I packed for this trip, I was like, well, I like that bathing suit, but then what if I want a one piece as well? And oh, I like this sarong. Oh, but I'll take that. Oh, but I'll take this. I like this sarong, but I really like this um, cover up. I have to take this cover up. This cover up's just really cute. And I can also use it as a top. And then I thought, Pelly, stop. One bathing suit, right? And, and you have to kind of tell yourself that. So I kind of had all this stuff out and then I, I kind of pulled things away. I'm like, no, that would be nice, but no, nope, I don't need it. Nope, I just need one bathing suit. And what about when you buy things, you buy really good quality that are specifically to help you or you just don't necessarily? I don't necessarily do that, but I think that's probably a better idea because I think I tend to rotate stuff. Okay. And I have to actually be very honest. I didn't bring much on this trip and then I was regretting it when I got here because it's France, it's Europe. Mm -hmm. People don't look like slobs, right? They look nice when they go out. <laughs> so, okay, so you're now in Vance. One of your dreams was to learn French and now you're at it. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the things. Now, finally, because that's we, you know, in 2014, when we decided to, to quit our jobs and leave and actually just take a two-year break that turned into longer, what did help us 
was, and I know, I mean, people were talking about vision boards at that point in time, and I don't know what the word would be now. We just got a poster board and we just started writing things down that we wanted to do. So it wasn't so much a vision board of cutting out pictures and visualizing it and putting it up there to see, but we just wrote down some things. And it was really helpful because it actually helped me get me very excited about the change had me look forward to certain things. I was very much looking forward to our time off, knowing that we had these great things that we put on our list. But honestly, it's not until now year nine that we're getting to the one thing that I had put on the list was wanting to really delve into the languages. And it could be any language for me. I just, I love them all. We go somewhere, whether it's wherever it is, whether it's Vietnam or whether it's France here, I I always want to try to pick up a few of the words or I want to look at a newspaper and see what what words I see repeated and maybe what do they mean. And so I'm always trying to do that type of thing. But it was it was specifically like Italian, Portuguese, French, just those romance languages, thinking I would have an easier time with those. And so, yeah, so we finally, after year nine, have time to do that. Okay. You have met a lot of people on your way that have been doing this. Oh, yeah. That's been the most fascinating thing about traveling, the travel that we've done since we left Singapore in 2014. And I guess also the type of traveling that we've done as well that allows us to meet the people we do. Like I remember in, in, in Singapore, Andrew would always tell his students, you don't meet interesting people at five-star resorts. They're there, but it's a different culture. People are there with their families. They're doing their things. Of course, there's interesting people all over the world. But we love kind of on the shoestring type of thing. And not that we always travel like that. I think we have we have variety in our travel. We have definitely met interesting people. We still, I mean, we might be the oldest person at the hostel, but we still travel in hostels. We still stay in hostels. Not always. And that's where you get that kind of culture of those vagabonds and free spirits, right, that maybe don't have a plan and they're just kind of going with the flow Um, But we meet all sorts of people. And I think, like I said, this travel has allowed us to meet so many different people. And we're curious people. We have the bike in the box and we have an airplane ticket. That's good enough. The rest will happen. That is not everybody's style. Not everybody can travel like that. Other people need to know where they're going, what they're seeing, have it organized and have it planned. When we travel, we're staying here for two and a half months. So we don't have to be so organized that we take advantage of every day because we're not only here for one week. We like to say we're very organic. It actually always works out. It just doesn't always work out as well as it could have had we been planned. So you always go back to the specific spot? You know, we do a round trip ticket from point A to point B and back to point A again. So, you know, sometimes we have to finagle, how do we get back to our bike box? That's another thing. You together going on a tandem, you have to have trust. You have to have rhythm. I feel that it's not easy to be on a tandem. Yeah, I kind of fell into tandem life when I married Andrew. So he has a racing tandem and then he has this touring tandem that comes apart in pieces that goes into the boxes. When Andrew married me, we were in Singapore and he got a dog, a car and a full-time maid. That was my life living in Singapore. When I married him, I got the tandem (laughs) and more adventure, which was wonderful, right? So the tandem life was really something that I I was able to experience. I was cycling before that. I had a road bike. I had a mountain bike. But tandem was definitely something new for me. And Andrew always talks about tandems are either marriage makers or marriage breakers. Yes. Because Mm -hmm. you do have to work as a team. And you have to put a lot of trust into the person 
in front of you because I'm always the stoker. I'm always in the back of the tandem and I am happy with that position. I never want to be in the front of the tandem. I don't want that responsibility. He does the the gearing. He he, pedals. (laughs) Well, I pedal too. I pedal too. But he has control of the brakes. He has control of the gearing. And he has control of the steering. So you really have to trust the person in front of you. And you have to have a lot of communication. He just can't sit up off the saddle without me doing it at the same time. He can't just stop pedaling without telling me. And so there's a lot of communication that has to happen. And you have to work as a team. We're, we're a great team. We love spending time together. We spend a lot of time together. We spend all of our time together, more than probably most couples do. Then when we took a van trip in 2017 in a 21-foot Winnebago Travato with it's a small space. And we were together for 17 months in that van traveling through Mexico and Central America. We spend a lot of time together. You know, the tandem, it's just another piece of teamwork for us. And we do very well together. Yes. Thank you for the details. That is, is true. It's important. You know, Pele, that I'm looking at you and now I can see, you know, Wonder Woman, you look exactly <laughs> like her. What is her name? <laughs> Do I? Linda Carter. Linda Carter, yes. I used to love watching that show as a child. That and, yes, The Bionic Woman. Yes, The Bionic Woman. I used to have a notebook and I, everything that was in the magazine that were called the Charlie Angels, the Wonder Woman, the <gasps> wow. Bionic Woman. You know, all those women were my heroes. Like, I loved them. I feel like women have to have power. The women have to be independent. So you do look like her and like the real one, not, not, not with the costume. <laughs> Oh, it's quite funny, you know, that you say that because thinking about that Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman and strength and power and independence and courage, like all of that type of thing. And then I also would hear my mom's stories. And I think my mom was a bit feisty too. Growing up, she was always the tomboy and she was wrestling and playing baseball and basketball and she was water skiing and scuba diving. And so, you know, she was really adventurous. And also she was a teacher. She had a job. So she was very independent. And I think I always grew up being told, like, make sure you can take care of yourself, that you have a job that you can take care of yourself. You don't need somebody else. I mean, it's wonderful to have somebody else and have a partner in life and be with somebody and share that with somebody. But it's also empowering to know that you you can do it yourself as well. I think that's probably the hardest thing for me now, not working and not having a traditional job is just oh, that sense of identity. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different, yes. different conversation though. But I think feeling just strong, because I think sometimes I can be a bit, a bit too strong. It's also come in handy and it's been an advantage traveling. Like when I was going to do this podcast, I was thinking about, you know, when did your story start? And I was thinking about that. And the other night, Andrew said, Pelly, you have to start with those stories of, of that guy pulling that knife on you. And then that story in Colombia, you got robbed. And, and so it was like all these little stories that happened. And the, the funny thing about the, I'm not saying it's the smartest thing to do, but I think just from like that power perspective, and I can be a bit intent. Well, now you have to tell us a story. We were getting on a bus one time in Bogota. Somebody came by and ripped the watch off my girlfriend's wrist as she was getting on the bus. Now, this was Colombia, 1990. It was a very dangerous time, especially, you know, to be traveling in Medellin and Cali. And not, 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 not at all now. I think it's very, very different. And we were not in the best part of Bogota. So we were getting on this bus. We were getting on public transportation. And she had her arm up to, like, kind of grab onto the, the bar on the outside to put herself up, pull herself up in the bus. And this guy grabbed his, her watch and started running. And without even thinking, I chased him down. Wow. What? 
get back here. <laughs> so I, it was funny because another man on the street helped me and the two of us just chased after him and he eventually dropped the watch because he was just like, oh my God, these people are crazy. It was the same trip to Bogota. It wasn't smart on her part. She was wearing gold necklaces. Somebody in a stairwell tried to grab her gold chains. And then the third thing that happened on that particular trip in Bogota, it was like a scam that was happening at the time where somebody drops money and another person comes up behind, grabs the wad of money. Hey, shh, don't say anything. We'll share the money. Yeah. And then they take you to this very quiet alley and then you get robbed. Like that's like the whole scam and the whole idea. You're like, check in the bag, check in the bag, please, please. It's all I have. It's all the money I have. Just this whole scam that they do. And my girlfriend's sitting there shaking and and I opened my pouch and she's like, what are you doing? I always used to travel with a butterfly knife. You can flick around it. It opens and it closes. It closes on itself, but it has a pretty nice blade to it. And I pulled it out. And the two guys that were trying to scam us and robbed us looked at us and they're like, what's that? And I'm like, it is a knife. And if you don't get out of here right away, I'm going to use it. And they just took off. So, you know, it's funny. Did Wonder Woman and by, did, like, did she influence me? Like, did I have some influence somewhere that I thought I was just like, you know, watch out, don't mess with me. But I have quite a few stories of don't mess with me. <laughs> you just have to act crazier than them. And they're like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. This person, this woman's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I knew that there were kind of the only wonderful stories from Colombia. Something has to happen, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Colombia was a paradise for me, though. It was not the best time to be in Colombia in 1990 no. and 1991. I was sheltered because I lived on this tiny island in the middle of the Caribbean in this beautiful setting. So we had a wonderful story. You see, you said that, oh, I don't have a story to share, but there is a lot to share and a lot to entertain and to learn. You had a lot of wisdom that you share with us. So what do you think is going to happen for your next 20 years? What, what are your hopes and wishes? I mean, you're living your hopes and your dreamed life. Yeah, I guess in a way, I guess, I guess in a way, I mean, there's always the dark side of the dream. I said before, this, this lifestyle is not for everybody. And I don't necessarily know if it will be for me for forever. I am starting to really miss community and people that I have a history with, because you don't have that when you're roaming around all the time. And when you're staying two months here and a month here and three months here and five weeks here, you just don't have that. And sometimes we go back to the same places and we can see the same people. And that's wonderful. So who knows if this is going to be our life forever. But I think at least for, for quite a while to come, this adventure junkie is going to continue with the nomadic lifestyle. I'm so glad that Andrew loves to do this as well. I think instead of just doing short periods of time, we'll start looking at three months, four months, five months, and staying for a period of time. Because in that period of time, anywhere, you can really get You can join the gym, you can volunteer, you can meet people, you can develop a social life. You know, you can really kind of get settled into routine. And we actually still have our van, our Winnebago Travado in Canada. We're thinking about taking another stab at Argentina. So we did that in 2017 and we got as far as El Salvador and there was a bit of a skirmish going on. This time we're thinking maybe we'll drive to Mexico, we'll ship the van to either Colombia or Ecuador, meet the van in South America, and then really travel around South America. I can have more clothes in a van than I can have on a bicycle. Yes, for sure. Not as many clothes as I can have in a house. But you know what? It, it's okay. It's enough. It's enough. And that's an important word too, I think. Just enough. Yeah. The word, what is enough? Yes, that's true. 
have enough. We have enough money for our lifestyle because we don't live large. We have enough. Right. And you have the two of you. They're a good team. That's enough. We are. We are. We're a very, very good team. And health. Yeah. And Andrew always talks about which the only non-renewable resource we have is time. And so we have to look at our time together and take advantage of it and think, where do we want to put the energy with the time that we have? And what do we want to happen? Yeah, that's true. And for me, I guess I'm just like, bring it on because I'll probably say yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pelle, for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate your stories and your wisdom. It was amazing. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This will allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.